0: and by easternchristianmedia.com, a broadband network for you to learn more about the Eastern Catholic Churches. That's easternchristianmedia.com. Christ is risen, indeed he is risen. Welcome to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Lawyer, your host, during this marvelous radiant Paschal season. In the Eastern Churches, in particular the Byzantine Catholic Churches, We have, after the actual Sunday of Resurrection, we have several Sundays that carry with it themes that sort of continue the theme of the Resurrection. And this Sunday is Ladies' Day here at Light of the East. That's right. Today is the Sunday of the myrrh-bearing, or sometimes called the ointment-bearing women. Remember, those are the women that first came to the tomb to anoint the body of Jesus, because they assumed he was still in the tomb, dead. So they're going to anoint his body. Well, they came to the tomb... And the tomb was empty. And of course, the angel appeared to him, one angel or two, or sometimes it was Jesus himself appearing as a gardener, whichever of the gospels you want to use, because they're all a little bit different in this regard, which is interesting. But they came and got the message, and they were the first to get the message. And history will always note, it will always be said, that the first to receive the message of the resurrection of Jesus Christ were women, which would follow in the church because in Christ, There's this great synthesis. There's great kind of connecting of dots. It always amazes me how it all works together. It's just so planned, so integrated to the last detail. We go back to the beginning of the Bible. To whom did the serpent go? The serpent went to Eve, right? Why? Because, as the theology of the body teaches us, womanhood, stamped in the very language of her body, has the gift of receptivity. They are programmed to receive. And so the serpent knew that. Adam was supposed to protect her from the serpent, but somehow didn't. The serpent got around him or whatever really happened, we don't know. But we know one thing, the serpent got to her. Because he knew she was programmed to receive, designed to receive messages. Actually designed to receive messages from God the Father in heaven, all good messages. But the serpent gave her a bad message. She fell for a good line and all of creation fell with her. And of course, Adam as well. Now, later on, though, with the coming of Christ, we have another woman, the new Eve. That, of course, is the Virgin Mary. And who comes to her? An angel. Why? Because she, as a woman, Virgin Mary as a woman, is designed to receive. And so, the angel comes to her at the incarnation, you know, the annunciation. The angel comes to her with a good message, a good line that she would bear within her womb God made flesh, God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. Now we come to the resurrection. And once again, who do we have receiving a message? You got it. The women. The women received the message, the first to hear the resurrection. And their command, the command that Christ gave to them, was to go actually in so consistent again with womanhood because, of course, God, Christ created women. And Christ, knowing this, he knew how they were programmed, how they were designed, by him, they were instructed to go, I'm going to use the word proximity, in proximity. In other words, go first to the family. Woman's gaze is very internal. It's very proximate. They're very, very focused and concerned on those immediately around them, you know, husband, children, family, friends. And Christ gives a command to them consistent with their womanhood, with their gift, go to the community he didn't tell them to go to the world if you notice he didn't he didn't tell them to go far and wide although yes all of us are called to spread the gospel far and wide but in particular he sent womanhood back into the community internally take the message internally so that it would germinate among the apostles first and then they as men would be told to go out into the world go and take that message into the world you know go and take the hits take what it takes to get that message out, and even unto death, and to their own torture, their own crucifixion, their own persecution in most cases. But they went throughout the world, and they went with the message they received internally from the women. I always enjoy articulating the theology, the meaning of these great feast days in the church through the liturgical text, especially the texts in the Byzantine church, because our texts are very theological. They're narrative, they're historical, they're also theological, they're mystical. And so when we say these texts, and and of course we chant them in our church, what we're doing is we're, in a sense, making theological or mystical proclamations, We're proclaiming what happened historically, but we're also proclaiming its significance for us in the whole plan of salvation. So we're going to walk through some of these great texts on the Sunday of the myrrh-bearing women, the ointment-bearing women, in other words, Ladies' Day here at Light of the East. Here's a text that says this, The women prepared myrrh to anoint you and secretly came to your tomb early in the morning. They feared the boldness of the Jews, and they expected the soldiers to be keeping guard. But their weakness triumphed over manly strength, for tenderness finds favor with God. And so they cry out, arise, O Lord, protect us and save us for the love of your name. Now, there's an interesting line in there. Maybe your ears kind of perked up a bit when you heard it. It said, but their weakness triumphed over manly strength. Now, this does not mean that women are weak. Remember, The liturgical prayer of the church, just like the Bible, was not originally written in English, and sometimes it's difficult to find an exact translation in English of a word that originally was in Greek, or Hebrew, Aramaic, or Latin. But by weakness, what they meant in this liturgical text is women were, of course, of the more tender gender. In other words, tenderness, intimacy, love, compassion, integration, it's very much associated with the genius of womanhood. So in this sense, they were not weaker in that they're weak, but rather tender. In fact, they used that word later on in this text. So their tenderness, in other words, softness, tenderness, triumphs over manly strength. It's almost like this liturgical text is saying that Christ favors women. Yeah, In a certain sense, he does. I mean, certainly, he favored their character of tenderness. And so the text says, but their weakness triumphed over manly strength for tenderness finds favor with God. Interesting that at the first announce of the resurrection, Jesus put it in the context of tenderness, of gentleness, of love, of reconciliation, of intimacy, all that is sweet and good and tender and nice and warm and loving. Later on, that message, of course, would be taken to the tougher side of life. The apostles would have to get it in there into pagan countries and go up against people who would persecute, torture, and eventually kill these apostles, and sometimes, of course, reject the message. So they, the, they kind of had that tougher side of the message. But at the beginning, it initiates in the context of tenderness. And to whom does Christ go? He goes to womanhood. Here's another great text. O Lord, who clothes Yourself with light, as with a garment, Joseph and Nicodemus took You down from the cross and seeing You without life, without a garment, and without a grave, in their compassion they wept and lamented, Woe is me, my most sweet Jesus! The sun was covered with darkness when it saw You suspended upon the cross. The earth quaked with fear, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. I say that You willingly endured death for my sake. How then shall I bury You, O my God? With what linen shall I cover You? With what hand shall I touch your most pure body? What hymn shall I sing at your death? Therefore, O compassion, Lord, I glorify your passion. I praise your burial and your resurrection, crying out, O Lord, glory to you. You notice there's a deep human compassion in this. You can just imagine, imagine if you were Joseph, you got the body of Christ in your arms, which of course we do within our whole body in the Eucharist. But imagine you've got the body of Christ in your arms, and you're asking yourself, "How? how what do I do with? It? How could I close his eyes? How could I wrap him, anoint him, bury him? How so great and loving and wonderful thing? Yet it is entrusted into these men, Joseph, Nicodemus, to take that body and to do it reverence and to properly bury it. It's a very moving yet very reflective text that we sing. This is another insightful text. Stripping me of the ancient garment that had been woven for me by the power of iniquity, you have clothed me, O Lord, in the garment of immortality. I'm going to read that again. I want you to pick up on the, on the words here. Stripping me of the ancient garment that had been woven for me by the power of iniquity, you have clothed me, O Lord, in the garment of immortality. Now, notice the whole metaphor here, repeated metaphor, of clothing, of garment. There's something very deeply meaningful in this, theological. Because especially with the Eastern Fathers, the Eastern Church, there was a belief that kind of a sense of a speculation almost theologically, of what Adam and Eve were like at the beginning, that somehow their bodies were, were different, and more spiritualized. They were just somehow like the bodies we have now, but yet different. And then when they sinned, they took on what the church fathers call the garment of skin. Garment of skin. In other words, the physicality became a little more pronounced, a little more raw, a little more limited. Something of the spiritual part of them kind of faded a bit, and the kind of the more earthy or raw part of them, the the physical part of them, became a little more prominent, of course, imperfect, wounded by sin. So, with Christ then, as the text say, you have clothed me, O Lord, in the garment of immortality. So what's happening here is the text is implying that Christ comes and his resurrection as a new Adam, and he's kind of like reclothing humanity in a sense its original garment. In other words, kind of undoing what happened when sin came in and we took on this garment of skin. But actually this garment is not only going back, it's an even better garment than we originally had, a garment that we'll have in the eschaton. So the text calls it the garment of immortality. We're going to look more at the text for this Ladies' Day here in Light of the East when we return. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. Light of the East's mission is Christianity's reunion, and to tell the story of the Eastern lung of the Catholic Church, we need your support. In order to keep Light of the East on the air, you can make a donation now by going to ByzantineCatholic.com. That's ByzantineCatholic.com. Click on the radio button and then donate securely using any major credit card. With your help, we can keep light of the East's illumination bright. Live in a palace, but stay poor. And now, a Sheptitsky Institute Minute with Father Peter Galadza. In 1939, the great Catherine Daugherty, founder of Madonna House in Canada and a protege of Dorothy Day, visited Archbishop Andrei Sheptitsky in his palace in Ukraine. Sheptitsky himself was an aristocrat, but this is how Daugherty describes her visit. I was ushered into a parlor furnished with the utmost simplicity. Why was it that my mind suddenly imagined a CZ? Something in the poverty of the palace brought St. Francis to mind, for I knew that Count Sheptitsky was very wealthy. Later, my guess was confirmed by an old peasant woman whom I asked why everything was so poor and shabby. She answered, Oh, didn't you know? The Archbishop never spends anything on himself, his comfort or food. It all goes to his poor and his many works of mercy. To learn about degree programs in Eastern Christian Studies, visit SheptitskyInstitute.ca, that's S-H-E-P-T-Y-T-S-K-Y-Institute.ca You're listening to Father Thomas Lawyer on Light of the East. The Tabor Life Institute, which is dedicated to the formation and education in the theology of the body. To find out more about the Tabor Life Institute, you can go to TaborLife.org. That's TaborLife.org. Especially if you're interested in conferences and retreats, in particular for youth, young adults, and also for those of you who speak Spanish. That's TaborLife.org. Welcome back to Light of the East. Christ is risen. Indeed, he is risen. I'm Father Thomas Loya, your host. Now notice we change our readings from glory to Jesus Christ to Christ is risen during this paschal season. We're looking at some of the text on this Lady's Day, in other words, the Sunday of the ointment of myrrh bearing women in the Byzantine liturgical calendar, according to the Gregorian calendar, that is. And I'd like to look at one more text here. And again, when I say text, I'm referring to the prayers the sort of dogmatic theological hymns that we sing in our services. And as I read them to you, keep in mind they would not normally be chanted, according to an ancient chant in our churches, in our services. Here's another text. At your conception, O Lord God, an angel said to her who was full of grace, Rejoice! At your resurrection, an angel rolled away the stone. From the door of your glorious tomb, the first angel spoke with signs of joy instead of sorrow, and the latter brought us the good news of a Lord who gives life instead of death. Therefore, we shout to you, a benefactor of all, glory to you, O Lord. Notice what's happening here. The text is making a continuity, a connectedness. Like I say, we always connect the dots in liturgy. That's part of the genius of the church, especially in the East. It's connecting the dots from the very conception to his birth and now to his resurrection. So that when we look at the life of Christ liturgically, we kind of look at it not quite so chronologically. Yeah, there is the events, the separate events. You know, he's conceived, he's born, he lives, he dies, and so on. But we tend to look at it, and as you can tell from the text there, and the liturgy does this for us, it's kind of like one continuous kind of swoop. Think of it that way. It's a beginning, and it kind of moves right through and connects everything together till it comes to its culminating point in the ascension of Christ and the sending of the Holy Spirit. So, again, in the text of the church, We have a deep understanding of of the theological and mystical implications of the historical narrative events of Christ's life as we read them in the scriptures. The important thing, and this is the beauty of liturgy, is that it takes what's in the Bible and it makes it our story. It immerses us in a timelessness and in a theological, mystical reality. In other words, it takes those events to their ultimate meaning and significance and destiny. I know that probably many of you, hopefully, are you know, inspired or, or you feel at least that this is interesting, maybe even different, maybe worth looking into a little bit more. In addition to this program, I would like to direct you then to some sources I think would be very, very handy for you. First of all, talk about handy, something you can hold in your hand, put in your shirt pocket, your vest pocket for the guys, and maybe purses for the ladies. And that is a pamphlet, that's a little more pamphlet, like a little booklet called Theosis, Spiritual Reflections from the Christian East. Now, you are probably familiar with the Magnificat booklet, which is in the back of many Roman Catholic churches in the narthex or vestibule book rack. Very handy, beautifully done little booklet. Well, Theosis, Spiritual Reflections from the Christian East, is a counterpart to it. It's kind of like our Eastern version of Magnificat. In fact, a little salute to all of our Roman Catholic or Latin Rite listeners out there. We Byzantines actually copied this from you, so you had a great idea, and we took it and we're going to reformulate it into an Eastern form. So (laughs) we thank you and commend you for that beautiful little Magnificat booklet common in many Latin Rite parishes. So Theosis is just like that. Now Itzishu has about 100 pages, and they've got short essays for reflection on many topics: prayer, Eucharist, sacraments, but also and especially the feast day of the month and the contributing authors will be theologians and that are really a quite a wide variety and well-known from the Orthodox and Catholic churches, including Metropolitan Callistus Ware from the Orthodox Church and Archimandrite Robert Taft, who is a Jesuit. I am also, your humble host, is also a contributor to Theosis as well. A photo essay of an Eastern church somewhere in the world will also be featured. This booklet has beautiful photographs of Eastern churches. You can see what they what they're like. It will also include the calendar of saints for the month with daily prayers and a short biography of each saint according to the Byzantine calendar. And they also have full color with a lot of icons and photographs of a lot of images. And the deosis is printed. It's in a pocket size, as I mentioned. And you can get it on an e edition as well. To get more information about that, I highly urge you. These are getting really gaining popularity because they're just so convenient. And nowadays... You know, sometimes it's hard to get a lot of focus on things, so people don't maybe don't read as much and as long as they ought to or used to. So this is very handy. Again, you can get it as e, what's called eZine, you know, on the on the internet, but you can also get it as the actual booklet. And the reference for that is ecpubs.com. ecpubs.com. This is put out by our good friend Jack Fiegel from Eastern Christian Publications. Now, now I'm just not, I'm just not doing a sell job here on a booklet. What I'm trying to do is to make something available to you that could be very, very accessible. Many people, many of you, our listeners, will ask me, well, where can I learn more about what we talk about in Light of the East? Where can I go? And a lot of times what you're really asking for, as most people do today, is kind of a one-stop shopping. Well, it's very difficult to get a one-stop shopping, but there are certain sources you can go to that can be very, very helpful and convenient. This is certainly one of them. Theosis, Spiritual Reflections from the Christian East. Go to ecpubs.com, ecpubs.com. Dot com. Now, speaking of Jack Fiegel and Eastern Christian publications, he also organizes what's called the now famous Orientali Lumen, which means Light of the East, from which we get, of course, the name of this program. Orientali Lumen conferences. He has them in America and he also has them abroad. And we've got a couple of them coming up, and I want to tell you this now so you can make your summertime plans because they're in the summer this year. The one is called Orientali Lumen Euro East, number four. It's the fourth European conference of Oriental Lumen, and it's called St. Cyril and Methodius, Mission and Unity. It's Monday, July 8th to Thursday, July 11th, in Bratislava, Slovakia. Now, 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 that's a short time, but that's the conference itself, but there's other side tours and so on to make your time there a little bit longer. But the conference itself is July 8th and 11th, that's Monday through Thursday, 2013, in Bratislava, Slovakia. And information for that, go to olconference.com. olconference.com. The conference that's in America, again, is in the summertime, Monday to Thursday, June 17th to the 20th, 2013. Oriental Lumen Conference in Washington, D.C., at the Washington Retreat House. It's called Vision of a Reunited Church, vision of a Reunited Church. We have all kinds of great speakers. Our Metropolitan Tikhan of Washington is invited, Archimandrite Robert Taft, Father Sidney Griffith from the Catholic University, and a whole lot of other great speakers. Again, that's Monday to Thursday, June 17th to the 20th, 2013, in Washington, D.C. I mentioned the one in Bratislava. If you can't get there, then you can go to the one in Washington, or you can go to both. And if you want information on both of them, Go to the same source, olconference.com, olconference.com. As you know, we're doing a kind of a series on the significance and implications of the new Pope, Pope Francis, for the Eastern churches. And there's really a lot of implication, a lot of information, a lot of things coming over the wire, especially from the Eastern churches, Eastern Orthodox churches. And this is very significant. It's very historical. And one of those is an article by Adam DeVille called Reading the Franciscan Tea Leaves. Adam Deville. Is the associate professor of theology at the University of St. Francis in Fort Wayne, Indiana. He's the author of Orthodoxy and the Roman Papacy. So that's Adam DeVille. And I'm going to quote a few things just from an article that one of the things that was significant about the first thing the Pope said when he came to the balcony was something that very few people have noticed. They noticed that he said Bishop of Rome or Diocese of Rome, which the Orthodox really love. They really responded to that. But there's something else he said. He used the term the Church of Rome as being the one, quote, which presides in charity over all the churches, unquote. Now, this phrase goes back to Ignatius of Antioch, one of the earliest fathers of the church who had died somewhere around the turn of the second century. It was used in Ignatius's letters to the Romans, and it describes a vision of church relations quite different from recent Roman practice. But the quoting of this phrase, along with other gestures by the new pope, would seem to suggest that his vision is indeed quite different and wholly welcome especially to Orthodox Christians, for whom an overly exalted and far-reaching papacy remains the last significant hurdle to Orthodox Catholic unity. And again, this is an article from Adam DeVille. Professor DeVille also cites three other things. First, the pallium with which Pope Francis used is the same pallium used by Benedict in a design that was clearly the Latin counterpart to the Greek or Byzantine amophorium, thus a sign not only of a papal continuity, but again of outreach to the Orthodox. In other words, a pallium he puts on, he becomes Pope, It goes around his neck and shoulders, symbolizes a lot of things. One of those is he's the shepherd taking like the lamb onto his shoulders. That is designed and it was chosen by Benedict the 16th it was designed in the style of a Byzantine pallium or omophorion Second thing Mr. Deville points out is again the extensive and unprecedented involvement of the patriarchs in Pope Francis' inauguration, both Eastern Catholic and Orthodox. And thirdly, he points out that the fact that Benedict resigned was a welcome blow to the mythology of the papacy, and in less than a week, Francis has repeatedly extended that demythologizing. The resignation, through sheer shock by you alone, impressed on people that perhaps they have placed excessive emphasis on the papacy which is simply an office for ecclesiastical administration. And again, I I don't want you to get the wrong idea. We're not de-emphasizing anything about the papacy. We're simply giving the perspective that the Eastern Orthodox Christians and Eastern Catholic Christians are seeing in this new pope. However, it was already started by benedict the 16th and if anybody knows history and what the church is about it was benedict the 16th with his staggering intelligence and great honest scholarship want to thank you for listening again christ is risen indeed he has risen i'm father thomas loya on light of the east